Hooked on Health, a Go Loud original. Welcome along to week two of the Hooked on Health podcast with Eric Donovan. It is a Go Loud podcast original. I'm Willow Callahan from Off The Ball, producer on the show. Eric is back with us again for week two. Eric, how are you getting on? Very well, Will. How are you? Look, I'm good. I mean, I kind of have enjoyed the response uh, to week number one. And at this stage, I think officially I can say, you were saying previously you didn't want to be just defined as a boxer. You are now officially a podcaster, my friend. <laughs> um, at this stage, you could say you're officially a podcaster because <laughs> that first episode, Rudoshi McConville, which people can listen back to on the uh, Go Loud website or on the Go Loud app, that's out there now. And I'd imagine, look, you're probably enjoying the feedback you've been getting from that conversation with Oshin from last week, too. Ah, yeah, it's pretty good, really. Um, but Oshin's a great, great guest. Like, you know, he's a great talker and um, hopefully it'll all go the same way. So our guest on week number two, Eric, I first saw Mary Hulgrain playing for Kildare in an All-Ireland final back in September of 2016. It was the All-Ireland Intermediate Decider. It was the game just early in the afternoon at Croke Park as part of the triple header. Kildare, in the end, edged out Clare by 113 to one goal and 12. Usually in these games, player of the game will go towards whoever kicked the most frees or whoever kicked the winning point. But on that day, undisputedly, the best player on the field was the player in the goal for the Lily Whites, and that was Mary. She stopped Claire for multiple chances. She conceded one goal just before half time, but made multiple clever saves coming off her line, particularly in the second half. It was a huge performance from her. She was described as the hero after the game, one player of the game, and then went on to be named the Intermediate All-Ireland Player of the Year too. Like, just a remarkable year in her life. But as we're going to learn throughout this podcast... There was a remarkable amount going on in Mary's life at the time away from football, which almost makes that achievement seem even more remarkable, really. You're right, she did. She performed heroics that day, you know, and uh, it's amazing what we can do. We're incredibly resilient and powerful and, you know, no matter what's going on for us, like, and Mary kind of (laughs) illustrates that perfectly, like, you know, um, during the discussion, she talks about what what was really going on, gives us an insight into what... um, kind of troubles she was going through in life and you know you would never have guessed that this was not you know the same person who was performing heroics in Grove Park and winning all-stars and leading her team from the, the from the back line from the goal line leading her team to victory so you know I have a lot of identification with Mary you know um, she talks about addiction as well and going down that road and her recovery too so that's why I, I I chose her because I think her story is 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 in a, it's a powerful story, but it's also a very important one that needs to be heard by so many people. I know for you, like particularly since you met your fiance Laura, who has you know a background particularly in coaching in soccer, you've become more mm. interested in women's sport in recent seasons than you probably would have been when you were younger. Is that fair to say? Laura, I suppose has has made me more aware, you know, and I'm glad she has because you know they did you know. Unfortunately for them, they have struggled uh, with opportunity, equality, and 
the same supports and uh, and resources that are there for the men, you know. So it's been extra hard on on the women. Really has been hard on them, you know. And and Mary talks about that, you know, in the early de- in the early days, you know, she just had a desire and a passion and and a, and a determination to 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 just play, just play a sport, you know. And 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 many times, you know, she had to get in and play with the lads, you know, that the, the, the same she couldn't play with her with her own uh i suppose the girls basically because there was no girls teams there was, and that was it you know and that's sad you know which is not not too long ago either but um mary talks about it not i suppose affecting her or she didn't kick up a fuss or anything about it she just put the head down and got on with it you know and um thankfully today we're in a bit uh, we're in a different space with all of that and there is a lot more uh opportunity opportunity and uh, um, exposure and publicity around female sport. And there should be more, you know, we're going in the right direction though. Yeah. I think look, the argument would probably be as well. It might not have hurt Mary along the way that she was playing basketball against lads, football and ladies and well, Gaelic football effectively when she would have been out with the lads rather than ladies football, probably even won't have hurt her early development because Eric, we're talking about an athlete here and we'll let Mary tell her own story in a few moments time, but Someone who seems to have been the annoying kid at school who was very good at a variety of things. I mean, she's gone over to America on a basketball scholarship while also being a good footballer at the same time as well. Yeah, I mean, she was so athletic, you know, such an athletic um, uh, person and um, excelled uh, through sport. And I'd say whatever she put her hand to, she would have been good. And definitely, I think operating with the lads from a young age, a bit like Katie Taylor, you know, when Katie Taylor was sparring with the boys uh, as a young kid, it, it brought her on. And uh, Mary too, uh, you know, that brought her on to a whole new level. And she does, she goes off and she takes risks. And, you know, I think there's a lesson in that for everybody, you know, that, you know, if an opportunity comes, you know, seize it. And she did and brought her across to America. So she tells us about those experiences in America and, um, and what brought her back. And her road to redemption and recovery, which I think is uh, really fascinating. All right. Well, let's have a listen to that conversation then that took place between Mary Hulgrain and Eric Donovan. Eric started by asking Mary about growing up and playing sport alongside the boys. My brothers play, my cousins. I would have had a lot of cousins like the lads. They were always a bit older than me. And um, I think I think it used to just bother me, Eric, that they were they were better at me to football and they'd always be like, no, you can't play, you're a girl, you're too young. And soon enough, like when I got just as good as them, the boys had been early wanting me and I get picked first on teams then, you know, but it was that kind of determination to be like, you, you won't tell me that I can't play, you know, it was like, tell me I can't do something and I'm going to do it better than ever. Um, And look, maybe home wasn't great growing up and stuff. And I, I needed an outlet. And for me, sport was it. And, it took me away from anything that was going on in my life. And it just, when I played sport, I was present and I didn't have to think about my head. I didn't have to think about what was going on. Um, and I think it like, for me, it was such a blessing to have sport growing up because like, I could have went anywhere. Do you know what I mean? And I, I really am. I was blessed to have it and to have people around me to be in an environment that I could, I, I could play. What do you mean when you said like uh, your brother said, you're a girl, you can't play. What? Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, because like none of my none of my friends, I suppose, were into sports. None of my friends that were girls were into sports. Um, was there any girls' teams? No, there was no girls' teams. Um, there was no girls' teams until I was under fourteen, 
And like, I remember growing up and like even getting changed, I couldn't go into a dressing room um, with the lads. You weren't, it was like, it was completely separate. Like you weren't, you weren't able to do that stuff. Um, it's completely different than what it is now. Um, there's teams growing up for kids, girls, like under maybe sixes. Like. Um, but it wasn't until I was 14 that that, that was there. Um, mm. Now, when I started playing basketball in, in secondary school, it was there. And through secondary school, it was there because it was an all-girls school. But through, through clubs, I grew up playing with the lads. What was the name of that school, Mary? Uh, I went to St. Mary's Secondary School in Nace. Ah, yes, yes, I know it well. I, I actually ran a, a few boxer size and fitness classes in there a couple of years ago. The sporting facilities are brilliant there, and I was really lucky that I, like, I kind of landed there because, like, geez, even if you asked any of the teachers I had, Eric or Atten growing up, like, I just brought a basketball everywhere with me. Like, I'd be going down the corridors in school, and I just, I walked to school with a basketball. I got the bus, I had the basketball with me. It just it became like just a part of me and it was just an obsession for me. But like even being in school, I like, go out at lunchtime, I go out during classes, like and just be on the courts and I, I never got any hassle. The teachers were brilliant, like they all just knew like that's what she wants to do. It's quite clear that you had an unquestionable desire and determination just to, to succeed. Do you think that your time and experiences spent playing with the boys uh, helped with your physical development and ability? Yeah, I think physically, like probably I was always a bit stronger than the girls then. Um, and it was kind of um, that growing up with the lads, like if you got knocked down, you didn't cry. Like you got straight back up and you had to prove that you were just as strong as them, you know. Um, so when I went in to play with girls teams then, like physically I was much stronger. Um, I even always remember like I used to love the Rocky movies growing up. Me and my brother used to love watching them. And yeah. every night before I used to go to bed, I used to be like, I used to hate this thing like of men's press ups versus women's press ups. And I'd be like, I'm not doing men's pre- I'm not doing women's press ups. I'm not doing press ups on my knees. So every night before I used to go to bed, I used to try and do a man's press up, like a full press up until I got it. And then I remember going into secondary school then and being able to just bang out like full press ups, no bother, and no one else could do that. And like the first year I think I went into secondary school, I did absolutely every sport possible. Um, now I don't know if I did it because I didn't really want to be in class and I wanted more time off school or that I just wanted to put my hand to everything but um, I played everything um, I just loved sport um, I loved competing, it was the competition that I loved like competing against someone else and just having to be, to be the best at it um, and I actually think I won the, in first year I won the, the sports girl out of the first, second, third and fourth year um, in first year um, but like I think mentally as well, playing with the boys growing up, it probably strengthened me a different a different level. I just always had this mental strength. It was like this resilience inside me that nobody was nobody was better than me. Um, I don't know where it came from. Maybe it was from growing up through the boys. Um, but like I just had this thing in my head that like I'm not better than anybody, but nobody is better than me. And I just grew up with that mindset. Like, yeah, you've got that competitive nature. Um, no, it's no wonder you went so far. And achieve so much in sport. Um, I'm just wondering, did you have any female role models growing up? Um, Janice O'Brien would have been the first kind of person. I she was a good Calair woman. She played football with Calair, and I grew up playing soccer with her then. And she was someone I looked up to. Um, but like, no, my my role models growing up were Eric Cantona, Ryan Giggs, yeah, uh, Ryan Dean. You know, um, mm. they were all they were a demon. But with basketball, it was Alan Iverson, it was Michael Jordan. 
they were always always male figures. Um, yeah. No, I didn't. It's completely different than what it is today. Like. It's so interesting to hear you say that because, you know, my fiance Laura as well, like her first role models were Steve McManaman and Robbie Fowler, you know what I mean? So Liverpool you know, fan. Liverpool, all Liverpool through and through. And I know you're a Man United fan. Um, but anyway, I'm, I'm just wondering, do you think it's changing now? I think there is. And I think like the likes of social media and the more media female sports get as well, um, it's only getting better. I know within the GA and um, within the football at the minute, like little, even the sponsorships are like little or TG4. Um, have just elevated like where women's sports are on, on on a on a social media platform like it's unbelievable like and like even you'll hear um young kids in schools growing up and their role models are are the female footballers or female sports stars like it, like and I think social media and I think like different channels are like the likes of TG4 who've been brilliant with sports um have a massive role to play in that like you never I never would have seen a female sports competition on tv growing up ever like even if it was a final like i think maybe the, the women's world cup final might have been on sky sports or Eurosport. that's only where you got it you never you never seen women's sports growing up like yeah it's great to see and not before it's time either um there is a huge shift across the country and across the world i think in, around female sport we're seeing a lot more of it now as well and you know the sponsorship the exposure and all that it is on the up and you know rightly so um I mean, the hashtag as well, can't see, can't be, you know, it's never been more important. But it's people like you, Mary, you know, that had to put up with the tough times. You know, you had to overcome the obstacles and the hurdles, you know, to get into, you know, to help bring women's sport into this position. And whether you realize this now or not, but, you know, your efforts throughout the difficult days have helped to pave the way for the next generation. Where we are now in terms of male and female sports, so you wouldn't, we wouldn't have believed it like. And like, will there ever be equality with men and women's sports? Like, who knows? But look, it's I think it's for female sports, it's only going to get better. And I think I think the, the level of like of athletes um today compared to 15, 20 years ago with females, it's like it's a different level. Like when you watch like even like an old TG4 game of like women's football, like compared to now, the caliber and like the athleticism of, of athletes today. It's a different level altogether. Oh, I completely agree with you. I completely agree with you. I've witnessed it for myself. You know, I've seen it with my own two eyes. Um, And I mean this with no disrespect to girls football, but it wasn't an area I was familiar with. And probably for the same obvious reasons as everybody else, the lack of exposure, etc. But, you know, since I started to go out with Laura... um, I've paid a lot more attention to it because Laura works in the area. She's coaching. She speaks so passionately about it. And back in 2019, I went to support her. She was coaching the under-15s and under-13s KDUL teams in the Gainer Cup uh, down in Limerick. And that tournament was on for a couple of days. And it was an absolute joy to watch. Just the ability, the levels, the passing. Just It was fantastic. Such entertainment and really, really promising for... Irish football going forward um, but I remember Katie Taylor winning the Olympic gold medal as well in London and there was a huge influx of young girls taking up boxing across the country and for any of the conversations that I have with coaches as well like the general consensus will be that the girls you know are developing at a faster rate than the young boys because they listen they take on board what you're saying they take on board the instructions and 
um, and they're more technically sound than the boys, which young boys can have a bit of an ego and you know a bit of macho in this there going on, and they're, they're, you know they almost think they're ready and believe they're ready to fight from the minute they walk through the door. Yeah, I like I think firstly what you said there about like the likes of Katie Taylor, like it's amazing the impact one person can have uh, on such a bigger, broader scale. You know, once the mold is broken, something then that's it. But it just takes one person to do that, um, and and like. For her, for boxing, it's like she's done it. It's been brilliant. I've coached men and women, like men and women's teams, and like the difference is, like they're, I think they're brilliant. Like women, they, like they do, they listen better, they pick things up better. But then with the lads, you get like a completely different scale where like lads just don't think about things; they just go all in, which is sometimes I think is, is brilliant because sometimes the women kind of overthink things. I think there's like there's great pluses and minuses of both. Both, yeah. both, or both kind of male and female like in sports but um, I think the women definitely do do uh, have attention spans a bit more than the boys <laughs> Mary I want to ask you about your basketball career because you know you excelled at basketball and it took you on a bit of a journey do you want to tell us about that yeah so I um, I was in basketball camps in uh, growing up in Waterford in Dungarvan and um, there was American coaches kind of over at the camps and I went for the first year and um, the coaches, a couple of coaches, have spotted me and said, "Look, you can you can play in America," and like this already was my this was already my dream. And I remember a coach saying it to me, and I was like, "Oh my god, like do you actually think I'm good enough?" Because I didn't have that belief in myself. And he said it to me, and then another coach said it to me, and then a couple of other coaches said it to me, and then by the time I was leaving the camp, I had a couple of numbers and a couple of of this that they said, "Look, come back next year, keep getting stronger, getting better, and uh, we'll see where you're at next year." And I went back to the camp next year, and um, they wouldn't put me in the camp next year. They said that I was too good. They actually put me as a helper in the camp. So I, was, I wasn't I was able to actually be in the camp, but they, they, I, I still played. I still worked hard for a couple of weeks. I was there and I got a couple of uh, a couple of more coaches seeing me playing and they were like, no, like you, you need to start recording your games, start recording all your school games, get a highlight reel and start... Um, start getting in touch with coaches so so that's what I did so I I, I actually I saved up I bought a video camera um, and I get someone to come to my matches in uh, in St Mary's and did a uh, video of my games and I put together a little highlight reel and I had to include maybe one full game and I made um, I had to make you know the VHS tapes I had to make a couple of them so I had to, yeah. there was no making I wasn't able to make copies so I had to make like loads of them individually um, and I put them in envelopes and I sent them off to to every school that had been in contact with me or, with me or that I got through through the camp, and um, I must have sent maybe fifty off, like plus. And a couple of co- coaches got back to me, and um, I stayed in contact with them, sent them over more tape reels, and um, I I I had this thing in my head I was going to the states, and I was I didn't want to be in school. I was didn't want to sit my leaving cert. I had to sit the SAT exams. Um, now I set the leaving cert just because I knew I had to have it, but um. Everyone was like, what are you going to be? The counsellors in school were like, you have to go into college. And I was like, no, like I'm going to America. And I think they all thought I was stonewall mad. Like they were like, what is this one on? And um, I ended up leaving school and I came home one day and the bags were at the front door. And the mother had said, look, you're, you're either getting a job or you're getting out. And I said, I'm going to America and that's it. And I ended up moving. I ended up sleeping on my mate's couch then for a week. And I moved to Belfast then for a couple of months and I was I was up in Belfast and I got the call off a coach saying um, we're offering you a scholarship we need you over here in three days I was walking through Queen's University I'll never forget it and um, 
I came back to Salins the following day and I was on a plane a couple of days later, an Aer Lingus flight over to New York. Wow. And what did that entail, Mary? Like, time-wise, you know, what were you going to study, location? It was a four-year scholarship. Um, I actually kind of got a part academic scholarship with my athletic scholarship because um, I'd sat SAT exams and I had scored very, very high in, in the mathematics side of it. Um, and they gave me a part scholarship with academics. So it was a full ride. I didn't have to pay for anything. Um, it was pocket money. It was food. It was everything was covered. Um, I just basically had to go over, play basketball and uh, show up in school. And it was for four years. Um, but I actually, I got, I had a tough injury the first couple of months I was over there and I had to red shirt, which means you're, you're still in school, but you sit out your, your playing year. So I still had four years left. So I actually set out a couple more months than, than four years. I think I was over there for maybe four and a half or a bit more um, in the end, um, just because of injury. So, How old were you when you went over? I was I was just turned 17. I was 17 in the September and I was off on the flight in the, the December, just after Christmas. And did it bother you at all, being so young and being so far away from home? Or did you take it all in your stride? No, I think it was just, I think it was so surreal to me that I was just like, nothing bothered me. And I remember I got over there and I, I landed and the coach was there and I was in a van and like I knew no one. Um, I was the youngest by a mile. Um, I was after coming in the middle of the season. The season started in August, but I, I came in in the January. Um, so I was coming into into a team that were already a bit bonded. Um, I was in a dorm room on my own. I hadn't a clue of anything. And I remember just thinking like, my God, I am out of Ireland. I'm out of Salins. I'm out of that house. I'm out of everything I wanted to be out of. Like, I just didn't phase me whatsoever. To me, I was just, I was on cloud nine. Like. Mary, I know you mentioned a few times about you know, back in the house, it was tough. It was difficult a few times. And I'm just wondering what was so tough about it that you were so hell-bent on getting out? Yeah, I think it was just probably since I was young. Like, um, my dad was forced to leave when I was young. Um, so I grew up with just my brother, my sister, my mom. And look, my, my mother struggled with addiction um, and alcoholism. And, and she did. And it was, wasn't was a great, great house to kind of grow up in at times. Um I got kind of myself and my sister got separated from my brother then for for a good while as well. And um, it was just it wasn't it was something I just I always associated it maybe with just pain and and suffering. And it was just it was just I didn't I didn't want to be there. It was just it caused a lot of pain for me in my head. And it was just I, I was never in the house. I was always either out playing football, always out coming back late, just literally going there to sleep. It was just. It was like, and look, it was only when I came into recovery myself, Eric, that I realised that I blamed her for a long time for all that. And mm. only when I came into recovery and realised, you know what, like I have the exact same and it wasn't my fault. It wasn't her fault. It wasn't my fault. It was, it was this disease that you have that you grow up with. And when that happens, like nothing else in the world matters. You just, mm. you need to feed your addiction. And that's, I, 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 like, I got great like forgiveness and relief through my own recovery for her with that because I blamed her for so long like just it was like this growing up and like you know which and I think my own recovery has helped me massively with that like yeah and that's the thing about addiction isn't it like nobody chooses it but once one person in the family gets addiction or struggling with addiction it's not only the individual who struggles the whole the whole family suffers Um, you said you were separated from your siblings yeah so my, uh, my I think my mother was sent into a, a psychiatric unit for a while and my uh, my sister and myself got 
we were, we were one aunt and we stayed. It was actually only, it wasn't too far from our house in the same kind of estate. So me and my sister went to stay with, with a, an aunt um, who um, who was unbelievable to us. And my brother got sent to, uh, to a different aunt. So we were separated for a time, but uh, we were we were back together then as teenagers kind of growing up. And myself, my brother would have always been really close. So I think it was something that, like... I found that tough because me, me and my and today and me and my brother like Jez, he's just my world. I, I love that man to bits. Like yeah, just some people are just not lucky enough to be able to get the I suppose the help, the supports that are available when in addiction because person in addiction they are powerless really, and and not everybody makes it into recovery, you know. But to hear you speaking uh, and reflecting with forgiveness and with such maturity shows a tremendous amount of personal growth in you Mary no I think a lot of people even say like or even people who've been in them situations they feel guilt towards their children or people say how could you do that to your kids like I don't understand like you must be so selfish and it's not it's only through my own recovery I've realized that that woman was completely powerless to anything she did you know all she wanted was to get out of her own head. She was going through her own things. She'd been through her own pain, her own suffering. And, and it wasn't her fault. Like she, she probably did that to survive. Like that probably kept her alive. Mm. Um, but like I got that compassion towards her through my own recovery, which is something I didn't have for 20 years. Like Jesus, I struggled with that for 20 years. I used to hate women. Oh, like, and it was just one day I clicked it. Like it was when I realized through my recovery and my head started to clear a bit. And I said, my God, like I put absolutely anything below my addiction. Like I just had, like that was first. I would have stepped on anyone to, to feed my habit, you know, that way. Um, yeah. So like, so that, so gaining that, that knowledge for me has, has been, has been brilliant. It's been great freedom for me. You are speaking with great empathy and compassion for your mother because of the path you went down yourself in life. I mean, you experienced firsthand all about addiction and everything that comes with that through your journey and now have like would you say that has helped you to understand your mother maybe identify with her and change your perspective oh yeah actually i tell you all i was in the states and i'd gone through i had to have a reconstruction on my on my leg um i had a really bad injury i had to have two surgeries and then my, my last one was a reconstruction and I came out of it and I was, I was bed bound for, I remember two weeks, they said, you can't move like in this position two weeks. And I was got, I got hooked on oxycodone and oxycontins. And when I had to come off them, I couldn't. Um, it was the first time in my life that like I got this, this tablet and like not only was the physical pain gone, but like the emotional pain, the feelings, my head started to quieten. And I couldn't believe this. It was the first time it happened since, since I was a kid that I was actually able to, to not feel and I got that was that's where my addiction started like because I grew up saying you know what I've seen alcoholism I'm never going to do it I didn't touch yeah. a drink when I was 17 I said I don't want any part of that I don't yeah. like I'm going to be a successful sports person and I'm going to have absolutely nothing to do with my mother or drinking or addiction or any of it and yeah the minute I I, I I got them tablets like I'll never forget it. it was like this feeling of of belonging of this feeling something I've waited my whole life for it was like this feeling of love that I never had mm. it was just it took any feeling away from me and 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 that's where my addiction started and it escalated from there then you know um 
I, I was over in the States and when the when the tablets were gone and I tried to come back into playing, the, the drinking took off then and I came home then from the States. Um, I actually came home because I have, I have a little sister who, who I love to bits as well and I'm only back in contact recently with her there since since Christmas. Like um, We hadn't spoken in, in a long, long time just because of of, of addiction and my mother or whatnot and um I I met her there at Christmas so like I like and I speak to her every day she video calls me every day now but she was giving me phone calls over there saying look I like I can't deal with this like she she overdosed again last night and I was listening to this in the States and I just had this guilt in me that like oh my god how could I leave her there and I remember coming back that summer and I remember seeing seeing what was going on and I said look I'm not going back to America I can't and and I kind of almost used that crutch to say, like, you know what, like, I'm just going to go now and just went mad on, on the booze for a while. And mm. and that's where my 20s started. Then it was just Party City, you know what I mean? Um, mm. And it was kind of blame everyone else. Look, I'm back here because because of you. And I yeah. always used that, you know, I never took responsibility for it. I always had that, like, like that, well, look, you made me come back. You ruined my dream. So, like, don't say anything to me for going the mad one or going drinking for four days, like, you know. So what age were you when you came back, Mary? 22 so 70 yeah it would have been 22 so when you came back then did you get back involved in football basketball I mean did, did you get back playing sport yeah I came back and I um, I I started back then I think it was a couple of years I hadn't I done anything I was I I said to myself you know what I'll get back into football and give me a bit of structure and a bit of direction and maybe I might not kind of keep going as mad as I do or it gave me yeah. something to do. I just like I was lost because I didn't have sport, and I was turning all my my outlet. Then it turned to to drinking, and yeah. I said, "No, maybe if I get back into sport." And it did. It did. It silenced it for for a good while. Um, I got mm. back in playing with Claire. Um, because I played a bit of underage growing up as well. Um, mm. but say that the level of of basketball here probably it was the football was 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 far exceeding that. You know, it was. I wanted to kind of be where the the kind of the best kind of structure was and the best structure here kind of sport wise was with the football. So I went back into that playing with Claire and um, yeah, it, it quieted it for a while there. It did like, but mm. it, it took, it took off again. It wasn't long before it took off again. And like I was, I was awful for tablets as well. Painkillers were a big part of my addiction Um mm. big, big part of my addiction. And, um, but I'd seen it growing up again. I remember when I was 10 and I came in and I'd heard something in it football and my mother gave me two punts and she said take two of them I think I slept for 14 hours and I was only 10 you know like but that like yeah. to me that was just normal and I, I, I didn't realise what I was doing to my body so it was a mixture of tablets and drinking and it was just it escalated then further on to heavier drugs which is like and then in 2016 so we played the All-Ireland then with Claire in 2016 and um, like I was in the height height of my addiction that year really and, oh like the height of it like and I was I, I'd nowhere to live that year Um, I was sleeping in my car I'd lost everything through through, uh, through addiction Um, I my sister was I hadn't spoke she was gone Um, I'd lost the license I lost the license for three years after being in court again for the third time Um, I had no mother I had no father I I was living in my car my brother I wasn't able to see my brother because I had no I had no way of driving down because like a no license so to me I was just I'd lost everything and only when my Kildare manager that year he got me the house that I'm actually living in today and um, 
he he said, look, show up here. On he he kind of questioned me. He said, like, why is there pillows and duvets in your car coming training? And I kind of brushed it off. And he said to me again, he said, what's the story like? And I said, look, I'm struggling to get somewhere to live at the minute. And I think that was a Tuesday morning. And by a Tuesday night, he had me at a house. And he said, look, what do you think it is? And we got to the house and the place was just a wreck. And he said, look, what do you think it is? We'll fix it up yeah. And I said, look, it, it, it's it's perfect. Like, can I, can I move in tonight? And the man went and got me a mattress, a bale of brickets and a fire log. And I slept in there for three or four months with no electricity with just me and my dog. Like, and like we, we built the house up from there and it's the house I'm living in, in today. Like, you know, it's it's a home today. It's something I never had. It's it's my home. What was the manager's name? Alan Barry. Great man. He's from Newbridge. He's a Sarsfield man. And mm. I'll, I'll forever be grateful to that man for what he did for me, you know. It's great to hear you talking about your manager. You know, I I can identify with that, like because, my, well, my own club coach, you would have helped me out a great deal in life. You know, and I would have let myself down. I would have let the club down. But, you know, he, my coach Dominic O'Rourke, I'm talking about here. Like he, yeah, he would have um he would have helped me out a great deal, and he never gave up on me. You know, uh, even in all those times, I let him down. But um. You know, there's you you talk about your manager as well. The coaches, the length and breadth of this country, they do a tremendous service to society. Like especially the 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 volunteers, the grassroots level. You know, just they go above and beyond. And uh, we're very lucky. We're very lucky to have people like that, I suppose. Um, but so that help that Alan gave you, I presume then that that would have been like gave you a new start and almost like give you a foundation then to kind of kick on in life yeah it, uh, it didn't there I think my, my drinking took off more like my darkest times like in my addiction when I think about it is, is sitting in that house on that mattress on my own and I was happy what I thought happiness was was I had I had enough cans and enough drugs there to keep me going that I was going to be able to go to sleep and, and I wasn't going to have to worry I was going to be I was going to be able to go to sleep and not be in my head you know Um. But, like, I wasn't at my rock bottom yet, and I, I had to go there. And, like, I mean, we played the, the All-Ireland 2016, and, like, I remember I remember Alan texted me that morning, and he said to me, this was on the Saturday, we were playing on the Sunday, and he said to me, Alan would kind of give me a dig out in the house, and I think he'd known what was going on. He'd seen, like, bottles, cans, every... I think he had an idea, and he texted me and he said, look, like, just don't have a tipple tonight, like. And I remember thinking when I got this message off, I remember thinking like, I said, what, what's a tipple like? I didn't know what a tipple was. So I remember Googling it, right? <laughs> and uh, I remember saying, Jesus, this lad thinks I'm an alcoholic or something. <laughs> I didn't speak to him for, for, for so long after that because I had this resentment against him saying like, I, like, who do you to say who I was? But I was saying that, Eric, I had eight cans the night before that All-Ireland final because I said to myself, I'm going to go easy tonight. I'm going to be ready for tomorrow. I'm going to play in a good match, so just don't go too mad. And I said, right, I'll have enough to get me through the night that I can fall asleep. So I had eight cans. And there's me saying to myself, like, who does he think he is telling me not to have a tipple tonight? Like, yeah. And I didn't speak to that man for months. I was, I had this resentment against him, like, you know. But, like, I had to go a bit further. I had to go to my rock bottom. And at the end of 2017, then, you know, I was on my knees. And, um, and I managed to... With the grace of God, make me way into recovery. Like you know, I was, I was, I was on my knees. I was suicidal. I had nothing left of me. I wasn't living at all. It was just mere existence, and I couldn't, I couldn't do it anymore. And I somehow had this strength inside me to ask for help, and and I did. And it was the best phone call to this day that I've ever made in my life. Um, to a man that I, I knew 
had stopped drinking and all I did was ring him and say, I need you to help me to stop drinking because I knew drink was the start of it. You know, drink came first and then everything else came after. Um, and it was the best phone call to this day that I've ever made in my life, you know. So you made the phone call, Mary, and that was the start. And what did you do from there? I think reaching out was the start, you know, reaching out. It doesn't matter doesn't matter who it is, someone you trust, someone you love, or someone you think that might just have a bit of advice that can help you. The reaching out was the first thing. Um, trying to get clean and sober for me then was was the next thing because I had these demons in my head for so long and like the substance for me had silenced that and it kept it at bay. So when the drink and everything else was taken away from me, like Jesus, the demons got louder and the voices got louder and that inner critic started screaming at me, you know, so... I think probably like the toughest time I probably ever had really was when I was in early recovery um, the drink and drugs were taken away from me and I, I was just left with me. Like to me, that was that was the hardest part of my recovery. But I got through that. And look, I came in to recovery three years ago. I struggled for I struggled for three years. Like I didn't get it. I was in because I felt I had to be there. I knew I had a problem. I really knew I had a problem. I knew a long, long time ago I had a problem, but I wasn't ready yet. And like my recovery changed then last year when I said to myself, right, I want this now. And it wasn't it wasn't for anybody else. I wanted it for me. And when I started building that relationship with myself and instead of, instead of having been told, here, you have to go to this meeting, you have to show up here, you have to do this, you have to do that. I was the one picking the phone up and saying, here, I need to go here. I need to do this. Ringing someone saying, here, look, I'm in a bother here. Is there any way you can give me a bit of advice? And when I started doing that, my recovery changed. I wanted it. Um, but I wanted that relationship for myself and I, I wanted to live for myself, not for anybody else. Well, that's what addictions are anyway, aren't they? Like they're crutches, crutches to help us to get through life, crutches to help us to cope with life on life's terms. I'm, I'm talking about people in addiction, you know, whether it's mental health issues or emotional issues or whatever. The crutches are obviously providing some sort of service at that time. Um, but you clearly wanted to stop and... You know, but stopping can be difficult. It is difficult because you put down the crutch and now suddenly you're left exposed to these powerful and emotional feelings and you're trying to deal with them naturally and organically. You clearly understand that the addiction is not the solution anymore because it's just a masking tape. It's not dealing with the real issues. But you said I had to look at myself. No, you were determined to find a different strategy to cope with life how do you get there who helps with that and what did you what resources were available to you yeah so i think like i think developing that relationship with yourself is something it takes time to learn how to do because like i was always looking for that escapism always no 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 matter what it was or it could have been like it could have been like true exercise or true working out it could have been true food you know what i mean i find escapism in a jar and a teller like it was just something yeah. to take away from me. Do you know what I mean? Just because I could not sit with myself. I was not able to just, I wasn't, I was always looking for something else because I wasn't able to find approval in myself. Um, so like I had to stop running. I was running my whole life since I was a kid. I, I Like I, I always say, I always had the ASICs on. I was always running away from my problems and I had to start facing them. So like reaching out was the first thing, admitting I had a problem. That was the first thing I had to do. Then I had to start showing up. I had to do the suggested things, which was like there's great services, like there's uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, there's there's CA, there's NA, there's great free services out there that like 
people don't really know about or that, but like they're unbelievable and they've been unbelievable to me. Um, so it was to attend them, um, like and to attend them regularly every day. Um, I had to do that, and like if I had a problem, I had to pick the phone up. There was no saying I can deal with this now. I'm Mary. I can deal with this myself. Like I've this strength inside me that I don't need help off anyone. It was to be vulnerable and to say, right, I I, I need help here because mm. like I had to change absolutely everything. Um, and it was through them rooms, Eric, that I got I got uh, I got the tools I needed for recovery. Um, I had to get outside help as well. Um, which is something I still do, and I probably will still do for a long, long time because it's it's been brilliant for me and um. I I had to find someone I connected with. Like I'd been to a lot of counselors, a lot of psychotherapists, a lot of everything. And like I I go into people and I'd sit there and I'd say, No, I'm not connecting to you. Sit there for the hour, hand the money and say, Yeah, I'm never gonna see you again. Mm. Um and that was my perception of counselors. Um and I had to keep trying. And you have to keep trying till you find that connection with someone. And when you get it, then boom, that's where you go and talk and that's where you pour out everything. You get very honest with yourself. Now, like, you don't just go and tell someone what they need to hear. You have to be honest with you. Um, and that's something I learned through recovery as well. Like, I heard someone saying once before, you have three faces, you know. You have you have the face you show the world. You have the face you show your close friends. And then you have the face that is, that, that's you. That's really you. And to be honest, like, that's that, that last one is what you need to show constantly. And when you put your head down on the pillow at night time, you need to say, you know what, I lived an honest day. And like that brute honesty and that like that really has helped me with recovery and life because I don't have to live in fear anymore. You know, I used to be always like I used to have a different mask for all my different groups, my football friends, my basketball friends, my drinking friends. I used to have a different a different mask for everything. And like today I'm just me. I'm just I'm just more like and it's the relief and the freedom of having that like. It is yeah. unbelievable. But I got them tools in the in the rooms of recovery through AACA and NA, like, you know. You know, Mary, I have loads of identification with you around addiction. Um, my own addictions have taken me to some really dark places and, you know, would have spent a lot of my time searching for oblivion and just not able to cope with life on life's terms, you know. But thankfully today I can, you know, I have the tools to deal with life now and, I suppose, well, I suppose we're, we're some of the lucky ones, you know, that we've found recovery. Um, and sadly, not everybody makes it. But the services that you talked about, it's great to hear you talking about those services, the free services. And, and to, hear, to hear you talking about therapy and counselling and all that as well, that's so, so important. And I will always use my profile uh, and platform to talk about that too, you know, because that has been a tremendous help to me in my life. Um, so... You know, it's just great to hear you speak like that. Uh, and I think your story is going to help so many people. But come here, in the middle of all of that, you were winning All-Ireland titles. You were performing heroics in Crow Park in front of thousands of people. Tell us about that. I remember, like, the, the, the crowds were rolling in in the second half in, in that game. Like, and I remember standing the goal. First of all, I remember walking around Crow Park behind the band and I just saying, oh, my God, get me out here. Like, I just do not want to be here. Like, yeah. I remember then in the second half, like, and crowds start rolling in, and I remember just standing looking in Crow Park, and I was just like, I don't know if I kind of came through a bit or started to sober up a bit or what, and I was just like, what the hell is going on? Like, where am I? Like, and I just like I got this moment of being present, and I just, Jesus, there was there was fifty thousand in Crow Park, Eric, and 
to me yeah. I was I was standing there on my own you know I was just so alone so mm. lonely I just I just I didn't want to be there Um, I just was thinking you know what the session's happening after and I'll get away with murder then I didn't care if we won or lost because I knew that that was the last game you know mm. either way win or lose that was the last game and like that's where my head was at like and it's sad when you think about it now, but like to think, I don't even know how how we got through that year really, or I don't know. It was just this resilience, just to keep going. You know, I think I had that from growing up. Like just just keep going no matter what. If you fall back down, just keep going. You know, everything passes. You know, everything will end. It just goes to show you that you, we never know what's going on for an individual or a person. Like, and I suppose anybody who was in that stadium that day or watching you on TV, um would never have guessed that you were thinking that way, that you were feeling that way. I mean, you you played out of your skin. Like, you performed heroics that day, and your performances all that year were excellent, but particularly on that day, in, the, in that final against Clare, you were outstanding. And, you know, that cemented your place on the All-Star list, and you won the All-Star that year as well, and rightly so. I'm just wondering... Does something change inside of you, like when that whistle goes, like when you have an objective in front of you, uh, like something you can see, something practical, do you just transform and, and leave all of your worries and cares behind you and just almost just for the duration of the of, of the game, just focus at, at, on the job at hand? Yeah, I think, I think sport gave me that, like I think it gave me that that little bit of freedom that no matter what I had going on in life or no matter what problems or no matter what was going on in the outside, when I got into the arena, so to say, like it was, it was game on, you know, everything was gone. It was just me. And I was like a kid again in my playing field and I was able to just be free. And, and it, like sport gave me that. And I think that's why it, it saved me in a way for like, it really did, did for so long. Um, but like, it's just, I just, I always had that, like that, that winner's mindset, Eric. I know you can relate to that. Like, it's just that nobody was better than me. I just had to be the best. And no matter what I did, like, it was, it was just, it was something that was just drilled into me, I think, from just, from growing up. Like, um, I'll tell you a story about the All-Ireland as well. It's, it's, I, I hadn't seen my dad in a long, long time since I was very young. Like, and I was in the, I was in the pub a couple of weeks later, um, in Salins out for a drink or whatever. And a man came up to me and he said, uh, Jeez, it was great to see your dad in the stands in Crow Park. And I said, uh, I said, what do you mean? Like, and he said, uh, I saw your dad walking out with Croker that day. I was chatting to him. And he said, geez, I hadn't seen the man in 20 years. And like, this was a couple of months like after. And oh my God, still to this day, like, it still like, it still touches me. Like, because wow. I hadn't known that day, like that, that my dad was standing in, in the stands watching me. Like, you know, it would have been, it would have been completely different. Like, you know. Someone had seen him. They'd been up from Salons. They'd been up at the match and they'd seen him walking out of Crow Park and they just they hadn't seen him in 20 years, but they recognised him and they said, oh, what's the story, Jim? How are you? And uh, and he, uh, as I, I got to know him later then through recovery, he uh, he told me he had absolutely every newspaper clipping of me from that year and everything growing up. And Asher, he was proud as punch, like, you know. He had a stroke. He wasn't too well. And I actually just gave him a text. Uh, out of the blue, I was only in early recovery. I said, uh, look, I know I haven't spoken to you in a long, long time and I don't, you probably don't want to speak to me, but I just I hope you're okay. I heard you weren't too well. And I met him uh, in a little cafe in Kilcullen the uh, following week and says I was so nervous. And, oh, sure, he contacted me every day since then. And, you know. 
Oh, Mary, that's just brilliant. I, I'm getting emotional here listening to you. Um, amazing story. Um, do you think you would have played as good if you knew your dad was was in the stands? I don't think I would have drank the eight cans the night before. <laughs> Oh yeah, that's know, brilliant. But it's, just, it's something that like, because like you look, you know yourself, like there, like I never, I didn't feel for so long. I was never able to feel emotion, like you know, I was just, I was never able to feel empathy or compassion or anything until I came into recovery. And like still to this day, when I think about it, like that he was sitting in the stands watching me, like proud as punch, like it just, it still gets me. It still does get me fierce emotion. You know, it's 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 a great memory to have in the midst of all the darkness that was going on then. You know. Well, I want to wish you and all of your teammates, the Lily Whites, the very best of luck as you go in pursuit of more glory this year. I'm just thinking back to your through your story and, you know, Mary, thanks so much for your honesty. You've been so brave and honest and sharing with us on this level and, and I think it's so important. Um, I mean, I firmly believe that in order for us to be able to address an issue or do something about a problem we have to acknowledge it we have to take ownership for it we have to talk about it put it out there and you speak about that so well and about that process and there's lessons in that for everybody but what a transformation in your life you came back from america you're so young you know um you know you had no mother in your life at that time you had no father in your life you're disconnected from all of your siblings uh, and it was just you and your dog and the kind of picture that paints is like a hope you're in a, like a hopeless place and to the help of some very important people um you manage to get back up on your feet and then suddenly you're winning you're you're winning all Ireland titles you're performing heroics you're winning all stars you found recovery and you're in a great place in life and you've opened up your own gym you've opened up your own business i do see you there training people inspiring people I mean, how did that all happen? Yeah, so I kind of got into the fitness industry. When I came back from kind of America, I, I had a lot of rehab to do and stuff from injuries. And I kind of fell into strength and conditioning. And I kind of said, look, this this kind of interests me. This is where I want to go. And I became a personal trainer. And I kind of I did that for a long time. I, I opened a, a little place in Salins years ago um, as as my, I kind of went out on my own. And um, then I, look, played the tape forward. And at my own gym now, it's called the Compound Training and Recovery. Um we kind of opened it kind of up last year after the first lockdown, kind of the, the bigger kind of part of it. And uh, look, we got shut down fairly quick, but it's it's going, it's ready to go again as soon as, as the lockdown lift. And we've a great community there. We've 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 developed a, a like a great crew, and it's just I I love what I've made there. Eric. It's like it's not it's not like a regular gym. You don't go in. There's no mirrors. There's a sign at the door saying "Leave your ego at the door." You know, people come in. Um, I just want people to be the best versions of themselves, you know, believe in themselves Um, have come in and have a bit of crack, you know, work hard. But at the end of the day, leave smiling, knowing that you, you gave everything for the hour and you had fun doing it. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. take responsibility and ownership um, and have a little bit of belief in yourself, you know, and yeah. like if you're in, you're, you've only trained a day or you've been training for 10 years, you come into my gym and you get tra- treated with the exact same respect and the exact same level. Um, and I'll give you the exact same commitment, like to anybody that comes in, you know, because, um, and that's why I love the classes. Someone can train someone who's been around 20, 30 years in the, in the business or a personal trainer to someone who's just a newbie. And like, I think you'll connect with people in the likes of that situation. Like you'd never talk to the likes of those people outside of the gym, but you come in and have the crack and like, look, there's great slaggings, which I love about the gym. Everyone just, 
there, like there's no seriousness. Everyone just takes the piss out of each other. Everyone gets in, works hard, and uh, look, it's fun, which I think at the end of the day is important, and it's it, it helps people internally as well as externally, which is something which is something I'm passionate about, you know. Um, and I, I can't wait to open back up. Like, I just yeah. I can't because like I have the online thing, which is great, but you don't have that connection of being in the gym with people. You know, you need that social interaction, um, like that connection with people. Um, and I can't wait just to get the lads back. Jesus, it's gonna be, yeah. it's gonna be a big year. And like, even after all like the setbacks and everything, like I have great hope, and I love that word. Um, it's 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 one of my favorite words. Like without hope, we have nothing. You know, and it's just a matter of time. Everything's gonna pass, and this will pass, and we'll all be back to to our lives in all time. You know, we will. Yeah, it's a very important industry that you're working in. And I actually think it's going to be even more important in the aftermath of COVID-19. Be Many people will be looking to regroup and rebuild and kick on again. Um, Mary, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. It really has. Uh, thank you for sharing your story with us. I think it's an inspirational story. You're an inspiration and a role model. And I think you should keep telling your story and keep talking about it because you're going to offer so many people out there some comfort hope and inspiration so thank you for being my guest on the hooked on health podcast uh eric thanks so much for having me on it's great to chat to your brother as always you know so that was mary holgrain in conversation with eric donovan eric remarkable story that mary has again a few things that i probably zone in on when i'm listening into it and the one that really kind of jumped out to me we mentioned at the outset of the podcast that you go back to 2016 and for most athletes that's the crowning glory is the opportunity to play at Croke Park the opportunity to bring your county to an All-Ireland title and like for Mary with the struggles that were happening in her life at the time to be sitting down drinking eight cans on the night and into the morning of the All-Ireland final that to me makes it all the more remarkable that she performed as well as she did in the early afternoon of that September day It's amazing Will isn't it like you know it's quite remarkable like to think um and you would never have guessed that nobody would have ever guessed that wouldn't when have had a clue not in a million years because of her performances but you know when a person's in active addiction um most of the time they don't have the tools to be able to deal with whatever you know upcoming events or uh big occasions and you know they'll they'll find solace and comfort in the drink or the drug or whatever it is and and that's the way it was for Mary that's how she dealt with it at that stage but once that whistle went you know she just transformed into this <laughs> superhero basically and uh, and uh, and smashed it on the day but um incredible story well the thing is well my heart was breaking when i heard about the idea of Mary coming back from america and being so far away from her family and then hearing the way things were for her family and things getting broken up and then having to deal with that and live in her car and all those kind of horrible moments trying to find a home. I actually found it quite uplifting when I heard about the fact that she was able to reconcile with her dad and has been able to do so, particularly in recent years, too, because, you know, it's an unusual way that they reconnected, that her dad was going along to the All-Ireland final out of his sense of pride without being able to even admit that to his daughter where the relationship was broken down. But I was so glad that at least that chance encounter with a neighbor was able to make them reconnect again. Yeah, it was a beautiful part of the story, wasn't it? Just really moving. And, um, you know, <laughs> funny when I said to her about uh, 
if you knew your dad was going to be there, would you? Do you think you would have performed as good as you did? <laughs> she said, "I might not have drank the eight cans," um, but uh, yeah, no, it was it was a great encounter, and it's a nice story. You like to hear because, like you know, she spoke about how close she was to her dad, and you know how much that impacted her and affected her when they disconnected. You know, all those years ago, and um, you know, he came back. He came back in at the right time, and he was in the right place at the right time, I suppose, to be able to see her. Um, you know, perform the way she did, and the fact that they've re- reconciled ever since has been a really lovely. Um, I suppose turnaround, turnaround of the story, and it adds, it adds to it. Because God, I'd imagine like whoever has to make that first text message or phone call to actually get the lines of communication back open again. When so much time has passed, that really can't be an easy conversation, I would think. No, it can't. You know, the, some of the biggest challenges we have in life are the relationships that we have with people, you know, and in many cases, the, 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 the most troubling ones are the ones that are closest to home, you know. Uh, so, yeah, I, I'd say it was tough. But like as Mary said, she grew. You know, she's grown. She's grown as a person. She's she's grown as a human being, as an individual, and she has the tools today to be able to deal with life on life's terms. And she's able to reconnect with the people that are close to her. And uh, you know, she's so mature. You know, listening to her. And and the other thing as well about this is, this is one of the reasons I want to spoke because like we don't hear many females speaking out in this capacity. You know, but females are they're struggling as well with addiction you know, with mental health issues, they're not exempt, you know, but we just don't hear many females speaking out. And that's one of the re- one of the main reasons why I want Mary to share her story because she helps so many people in her gym and, you know, with, with their physical health, but also with their mental health. And her story is just an inspirational one. And the more she talks, I think the more she's going to reach out to people and, and you know, Speaking to her afterwards as well, I know she said to me, like, I feel a little bit uneasy, you know, from speaking out so openly and honestly. And I said, Mary, I do feel the same. Anytime I speak out, I feel the same. It's almost like I'm a little bit exposed. But I said, do you know what? You're going to gain so much more from that. It's not easy. That's why people don't speak out in the first place, you know, because it's tough. It's one of the toughest things to do to speak out. Public speaking, actually, is one of the toughest things to do in the world. It's the biggest, you know, there was a survey done that the biggest fear in the world is public speaking, even ahead of (laughs) it was even ahead of dying for some people, you know. So to be able to speak out openly and honestly like that and share your experiences to life, the ups, the downs and everything in between. That to me is incredible. That's what inspiration truly is. And, you know, it's a, it's a testament to the kind of woman that she is and she's going to help so many. And I hope those meaningful conversations that our listeners are getting from this podcast is what they're really going to enjoy. Next week, I mean, we mentioned at the outset of the series, Eric, you retired briefly from sport, but then got back into it. We're going to be talking to someone who retired from sport on next week's podcast here on Hooked on Health. And, Again, we're talking about someone who's like a massive achiever, two-time European indoor champion, one of Ireland's best sprinters ever, retired, you know, not, a, not in the absolute fullness of his career, but still for, many people would have felt quite early, 
goes on then and totally reinvents himself in terms of being a broadcaster, in terms of being a person who's in front of the camera, winning MasterChef Ireland, now becoming only just a few weeks ago at the European Indoors. He was part of Ortiz's broadcast team, has covered an Olympics back in 2016 in Rio, uh, down on track as a trackside reporter too. I'm really looking forward to you chatting to David Gillick. Yeah, me too. I think Dave Gillick is just uh, he's, he's 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 a legend of of, of athletic uh, racing, and um, you know what an incredible guy, two time European champion, and he's been there, he's done it, Olympian, and as you mentioned there as well, like you know with the with the Master Chef and the, the TV work that he's done, he was brilliant in the Rio Olympics. Um, uh, just remember the the work that he was doing out there it was incredible. The insights he was given was was great. So I'm looking forward to speaking to him, and uh, he's a very interesting story. Yeah, I always find athletes on athlete conversations. That's why he's really good trackside too, because he has lived this. He knows what it's like to be at a major championships and he will know the elation of a good run or the disappointment of a bad run and probably knows exactly the same questions to put to the person that he would have received at the same time. I always find it's interesting when you get an athlete's perspective on that. David's going to give us a perspective as well next week, Eric, on the idea of retirement too. And I guess kind of, the way the time can span out in front of you when you've had a goal, and in his case, to be one of the top 400 meter runners in the world, is everything he does from a young age right up till he's about 30. And then after that, there's just so much more time left in life afterwards. And something I find very interesting about Eric that we'll get into with him next week is that you've got to readjust sometimes and you've got to maybe reset and find a way of doing something totally different. Life after sport is very difficult. It's difficult to adjust because for like whatever, 15, 20, 25 years, they could be so consumed with sport from the minute they open up their eyes in the morning till the time they shut their eyes at nighttime. It's just everything evolves around the sport, whether that's uh, running, swimming, football, whatever, you know, even from the food, the rest, the training, the planning, uh, everything. And sometimes other areas of their life can can. Um, they can struggle in other areas of their life and other areas of their lifestyle. So um, David Gillick, uh, I've heard him speaking about it before. And so I'm going to ask him how he managed to adjust and transform through that period of his life. That is going to be week three of the Hooked on Health podcast with Eric Donovan, a goal out original podcast. We will be back next week. Hopefully you'll join us as well uh, to listen to David's story and what he's hoping for in the future too. If you want to listen back, you can catch the first episode, which was with Ushi McConville, the former Armagh and Cross McGlenn star. It's available on the Go Loud app and the Go Loud website. You can also pick it up wherever you get your podcast from. Eric and I'll be back next week.